This week on Geek Explained, part two of Spidey Month is a full retrospective on his cinematic appearances, both under the MCU umbrella and deep in the Sony camp. So join us as we rank every Spider-Man movie ever. Yeah, even that one. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we Geek Explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is part two of Spidey Month. That's right, the entire month of July is being devoted to everyone's favorite webhead. And this episode, we're going to be focusing on the cinematic appearances of Spider-Man. We're talking Spider-Man movies, whether they were uh, under the Avengers umbrella, whether they were just by Sony, uh, both live action, animated. We're looking at all of them, and we're going to be ranking all of them as well. Plus, we have this week's comics countdown. We have this week's uh, weekly review, reviewing the newest episode of Swamp Thing. And uh, we've also got some news. Got some news. So we're going to jump right into the news segment here. So uh, yeah, let's roll it. So we've got lots of news for you here, uh, both in the worlds of film, TV, comics, and more. So we'll jump into, let's do film first. Let's start off with film. Uh, first up, we have the fir- the very first trailer for Disney's live-action Mulan remake uh, that's been in the works for, you know, I want to say just over a year, and we finally got our first trailer. It looks good. It looks good. It looks like they're going to be sticking to the original story more than the uh, Disney animated movie, but uh, we did get a little bit of flavor here and there, talking about bring on it to us all, uh, some of the iconography, but I'm I'm excited for this. Like, I really am excited, and I couldn't put my finger on it until I was talking to my partner the other day, and she said that the thing about it that makes it stand out and stand apart from uh, like the Lion King trailer is that every single beat, every single uh, character, every single piece of iconography in the Lion King trailer so far are carbon copies of the animated movie. Like it just feels like this is truly a remake. 
there's nothing that's really going to be new that's brought to the table it's just telling the exact same story with the mulan trailer it seems like it's telling a different story that not a lot of people know about not a lot of people know the original mulan story so i'm excited that they're going to be bringing that into it uh we did get some news about that throughout last year about the fact that uh shang won't be part of it which you know it sucks as like a fan of the mulan movie but if they are trying to really tell the actual mulan story and trying to make that as compelling and gripping as possible also giving a little bit of uh, breadcrumbs for fans of the animated film i'm all for it so really enjoyed that uh we also got in other disney news official casting the the very first role in the live action little mermaid remakes speaking of remakes uh has been cast and it is the lead ariel 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 however you pronounce it uh she has been cast, and it is, uh, I believe her name is Hallie Bailey. I'm not super familiar with her work. I know that she's a dancer as well. But um, the big controversy going on with that is that uh, Hallie Bailey is an African-American actress. And traditionally, in the uh, original animated film, The Little Mermaid, Ariel is a uh, Caucasian. So... Of course, because of how the world is right now and the current uh, political and social climate, um, there was outrage all over the place, both people in favor of it, both people just railing against it, and it was just, it was blown out of proportion, like it always is. Um, I, for one, am excited. I think it's going to be great. Uh, the whole idea of The Little Mermaid has never really been tied specifically to her being Caucasian. Uh, so I am all for it. And if they cast the right person because they think she'll be able to pull off the songs and she'll be able to have the same kind of youthful energy that Ariel has, who cares what race she is? Um, I also, I like that they're, you know, starting to, to diversify the, uh, live action disney princesses and it's like if you don't like the live action ones you still have plenty of cartoon caucasian disney characters so have have at it um overall my thoughts are if she's a good actress and she pulls it off she pulls it off i don't have any kind of negative feelings towards this casting once again i'm not familiar with any of her work but um i'll i'll wait to see it i'll wait to see and see what she brings to the role um, next up in, uh, other kind of, I think, sadder news, uh, we got jumping over to DC. Actually, before we go to DC, let's, uh, do the last kind of Disney, uh, stuff. So first off, uh, we talked yes, or last week about the MCU possibly showing up at, uh, Hall H in, S in uh, San Diego Comic-Con in a couple weeks, and it has officially been confirmed that the MCU will be having a presence, will be having a full panel presentation and everything at Hall H, which is really exciting. We're probably going to get the uh, at least a tease, if not the full slate for Phase 4. So this is the biggest drought that we're going to be going through uh, between Marvel movies, because we don't have another Marvel movie coming out for the rest of this year. Far From Home is it. And um, we don't really exactly know when the Black Widow movie's coming out, I'm assuming next year, but uh, we don't have official release dates for any of these films, nor do we know what 
gonna be in the phase so hopefully that illuminates a little bit uh speaking of far from home we also got some news that uh one thing that i thought was really interesting about far from home is that it was missing a bunch of scenes from the trailers and this is like a normal usual thing like movies will put scenes in trailers that ultimately get left on the cutting room floor just because of pacing and whatnot but uh director john watts has actually said that uh specific scenes were cut and taken out to be featured as i think they're calling it peter's to-do list it's going to be like a little mini movie as a feature on the blu-ray and it's just going to be chronicling his day getting ready to go on the uh on the trip that's featured in far from home um i'm not i don't like that to be honest with you i don't think that uh, certain scenes, including the scene where he busts what looks like a whole mob den, uh, should have been cut out. I think having that specific, specifically that scene in the first act really would have helped that act move better, would have helped it move along. And I think that it's uh, it's crossing a line. It's it's You're walking a really thin line between like wanting to... Uh, preserve something for fans and go you know veering into quote-unquote dlc territory where you're just taking things that should already be in the movie and making people pay more for them so i don't know i don't know exactly how i feel about that um i think having this mini movie or whatever be the uh extra content from endgame really would have boosted that we talked about that last week about uh endgame not really meet meeting its mark but that's neither here nor there. Um, so, once again, I'm not super excited about that, but I guess we'll see. Jumping over to the DC side of things when it comes to films. Uh, quick one, Watchmen. The original uh, 2009 Watchmen film helmed by Zack Snyder has uh, dropped on DC Universe, the streaming service and app, which we'll be talking about later for Swamp Thing. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of, I think, one of the most faithful comic book to film adaptations being in that like most of the shots of the movie are ripped straight from the page so it's still i think a film that really uh caught my attention when i first saw it and i think it still holds up today uh zack snyder's visual style his directing style really complemented the story he was trying to tell with the film so uh, i would recommend you give it a watch again especially if you have the uh, streaming service already because it's it's on there also, in DC News, uh, we have some interesting news on the uh, the Flash film. We talked about, uh, I think it was last week, how uh, Ezra Miller is kind of back on the film, that he's uh, wrapping up the third Fantastic Beast film, and then he'll be jumping with both feet into it. So... Um, some interesting news dropped in the past week that the team behind it has completely changed. Uh, Andy Muschietti, who has been the director of uh, It Chapter 1 and also its upcoming sequel, It Chapter 2, is now going to be directing it. We're getting a horror uh, director filming this uh, i think it worked well for aquaman even though that movie has so many problems um with james wan so i'm hoping that this uh has less problems but 
it's really uh it's really interesting because it was like i want to say it was like three years ago or something like around that that uh warner brothers signed uh let me look up here uh rick famuyiwa who was um who had just directed dope really good film actually features shameek moore who uh voiced miles morales and into the spider-verse and uh they named him as the director after this uh famuyiwa left um then we thought that uh phil lord chris miller also the uh writers behind uh into the spider-verse stepped in and then stepped out as well and then uh we had the writers from uh spider-man homecoming actually uh john francis daly and jonathan goldstein wrote uh the most recent drafts and then also stepped out before it was announced that Ezra Miller was working on a new script with Grant Morrison. Now, uh, Christina Hodson, who also wrote uh, Birds of Prey, which is coming out next year, I think, um, is now going to be writing it. So we don't know exactly where uh, Ezra Miller and Grant Morrison's draft now falls in that hierarchy. But, um, yeah, this is... It's interesting. I mean, Andy Muschietti did really good with It... Uh, even though I'm still terrified of that film, which I guess he, means he did a good job. And a kind of horror-inspired Flash film, I think, is a different take that we haven't seen yet. And I would be interested to see what he brings into it. Um, I'm not really familiar with a lot of Christina Hodson's work, but a lot of, like we said last week, uh, a lot of the first uh, reactions to Birds of Prey in the preview screenings have been really good. So I'm hoping that that continues on into this. Also, in sadder news, uh, Christopher, Christopher McQuarrie, who has been helming the uh, Mission Impossible films for the last, like, three or four uh, installments, uh, took to Twitter after being asked about it, uh, talking about... Someone asked him about his, uh, his Green Lantern pitch, which, first of all, amazing that that even happened. However, um, he answered back, Christopher McQuarrie did, that he had a full-on pitch prepared for Green Lantern and then also had a side pitch for Man of Steel 2 alongside Henry Cavill. And Warner Brothers was, for whatever reason, not interested in either of those. And I think that is awful. If you've been watching the Mission Impossible films like I have for the past few installments, they've been the best in the franchise. Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, Fallout, like these are awesome, awesome action movies and in a serialized format as well. And Christopher McQuarrie did a great job with these films and not wanting to bring him in, I think, was a mistake. So, I mean, we'll see. We'll see exactly what happens with that. Um, I, it's a bummer because he seemed pretty resigned to it too in this Twitter exchange that he was saying like, yeah, they just, they weren't interested for whatever reason. And that's pretty much the end of the story, which sucks. Uh, I would have been really, really into seeing what he would do with the Green Lantern movies as well as working with Henry Cavill since they worked together on Fallout. And I think they did a really good job working with each other on that so that's unfortunate jumping into tv news uh first of all really excited there's it's just a rumor right now but the rumor is that alan scott the very first green lantern may be making an appearance in star girl which is the next uh dc original series that's coming out 
held by Jeff Johns, focusing on the uh, titular character Stargirl. Uh, this show has been said to be focusing a lot on the JSA, which I'm excited about. I love the JSA. You know, you know me. Um, and I'm excited to see if more JSA characters show up. And if this ends up being true, Alan Scott does end up showing up in this show. Uh, I think it's a pretty good, pretty good chance that more JSA members will show up as well. Hoping for Jay Garrick. Just cross my fingers. But yeah, this is really exciting. Once again, just a new... Uh, just a rumor for now, but we'll see if that ends up being true. Also, uh, Stranger Things Season 3 dropped this past week and is breaking all kinds of Netflix records. Uh, the last kind of roundup that they did, it was watched by over 40.7 million households, so that's pretty great. Uh, Stranger Things is a worldwide phenomenon i myself just uh caught up on season two so i'm going to be diving into season three this week just checking it out and uh yeah so stranger things doing great stuff uh, i was actually pretty cool over here i want to say it was on santa monica pier they retrofitted the entire pier to look like an 80s carnival to kind of celebrate since season three is during the summer so I thought that was really cool, and I didn't get the chance to go because I was working all over the place, but I think it would be uh, pretty cool to see more stuff like that, especially because Stranger Things is such a period piece, and they do such a great job at selling the periodness of it, so I think that's pretty cool. And then finally, in TV show news, we have a rumor that uh, Runaways, which is a uh, Marvel property on Hulu, uh, I believe is going to be heading into its second or third season. Uh, maybe crossing over with Cloak and Dagger, which is another Marvel property that's similarly in that vein for uh, young young adult shows. So that's pretty cool. I always love interconnected universes, and the Marvel Universe does a really good job, typically with like its shows and its films on building a universe. So that'd be pretty cool. In comic book news, uh, I think the big talking point this uh this past week was that walking dead ended uh walking dead has been going strong for a very long time and all of a sudden uh robert kirkman and the other people who were part of the book just announced that it would end with its most recent issue issue number 193 and they dropped it like the day before uh the day before it came out and so uh when i went to the comic book shop last week it was it was gone every single shop that i called in the area it was gone so um i guess it worked it got the whole issue to sell out which is pretty cool but i think it's uh it's surprising which i guess feeds into the idea that you know anybody can go at any time in the walking dead but uh they had solicitations going for issues 194 through 196 or something like that uh talking about going all the way to issue 200 and ending it there but for whatever reason whether it was his original vision or whether he changed his mind along the way uh kirkman decided to end it at 193 so uh this is another end of an era uh, which I feel like has been happening a lot in 2019. But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to see where Kirkman goes next. Uh, it kind of seems like he's going to be taking a break for a little while just to, I guess, uh, recollect himself, get himself uh, back up to fighting form, and then jumping headlong into the next project. Uh, next up, we have uh, teasers from Year of the Villain that's, that's going to be coming out. Uh, it's going to be kind of kicked off with the Batman Superman book 
that's focused on the machinations of the Batman who laughs and how his uh, his infected heroes have infiltrated their way into the DC universe. So uh, really interesting stuff. The first big teaser image showed all of the uh, mainline DC characters kind of being used as uh, chess pieces by the Batman who laughs. Uh, who he's playing against, I don't know. I'd be interested to find out. And uh, certain characters did show up as well, including Wally West, my boy Wally West, sporting a uh, sick-looking new scarf. I don't know what the reason is for that, but I'm sure that we'll find out unless it was just like an artistic choice. And there's no reason behind it. In in that case, there'll just be no reason behind it. But uh, yeah, I think you're the villain is really shaping up to be something special. We'll have to see uh, the big kind of crossover with uh war of the realms i think did real well for marvel so i'm hoping that it does the same for uh dc we also got uh some more reveals from the legion of superheroes uh book coming out by uh brian michael bendis and ryan sook including the reveal that uh jonathan kent will be joining the legion of superheroes um, I guess we know now why Brian Michael Bendis had to, or decided to age up John, even though I think having a kid John with the Legion of Superheroes would have been even better. But uh, he is officially going to be joining the uh, the Legion. They showed off the uh, cover for issue two, which shows John receiving a Legion flight ring. So it's exciting. It's cool. I'm glad we're having a super character. I fi- I just hope that this doesn't mean that Mon-El is going to be, you know, kind of shunted off to the side because he is a uh, longtime Legion character and a big favorite of mine. So we'll just have to see. We've got the uh, two-issue kind of the two-parter issue uh, Legion of Superheroes Millennium. Uh, and then they're going to jump into the full-on ongoing series. So we'll see exactly what happens there. And then finally, we got the announcement of a new book uh, residing in the Neil Gaiman overseen Sandman universe, which is going to be, you know, a new line just completely uh, showrun by Neil Gaiman. And the newest book announced in that is uh, John Constantine, Hellblazer. So I'm excited. The John Constantine Hellblazer uh, character has always been a, uh, a favorite of mine. I really enjoy just his whole deal. And I really like the idea of Neil Gaiman getting his hands on them. Even though he's not going to be writing it, it's going to be... Let's see here. It's going to be written by... I'm looking through right here. Where are you? Okay, uh, so it's going to be written by Simon Spurrier. Uh, they're starting off with a The Sandman Universe Presents Hellblazer number one issue to kind of get him set in that universe. And then that'll be written by Simon Spurrier with art by Marcio Takara. And then that one shot will lead into the ongoing series being John Constantine Hellblazer, also written by Spurrier, but with artist Aaron Campbell. So... It's interesting. I've always been a big fan of Constantine's. I think he is an underserved character, and I was really excited when they added him to uh, Legends of Tomorrow. So I'm really hoping that this continues on. The uh, Neil Gaiman Sandman universe line seems really interesting as well. They've also announced uh, The Dreaming, House of Whispers, Lucifer, and Books of Magic, which will uh, all start new arcs in November. So 
I'm excited. It's always a good time to uh, see Constantine doing well when it comes to the comics. And then finally, in our miscellaneous news, uh, first off, earthquakes. Uh, I live in LA. I live in Los Angeles. And uh, we were hit by not one, not two, but three separate earthquakes over the uh, course of 4th of July and the 5th of July. And uh, they were weird. They were uh, pretty interesting. I had never... To my recollection, I've never really experienced an earthquake. I know that we've had earthquakes since I've been living here. I've been living here for almost three years. And uh, anytime we've had an earthquake, I've either it's either been like super early in the morning or late at night, so I've slept through it. This was the first one where I was completely fully awake and cognizant as all of them were happening. Well, two of them. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> it was weird. It was really weird. On 4th of July, we got a 6.8 and on the 5th of July, we got a 7.1. There was a pretty distinct aftershock from the 6.8 early in the morning on uh, July 5th from the 6.8. And then we had a little bit of an aftershock later on uh, on uh, July 5th. So it was a lot. It was weird. It really uh, brings to perspective just how much expensive stuff you have placed high up. Like we have, uh, we have wine on top of the fridge and when it started you know the first quake started going i was like oh man i gotta get those wine bottles off the fridge before they just shatter and start throwing glass everywhere so it was a little scary i'm not gonna lie i've never really experienced an earthquake before but uh all good on our end nothing broke nothing uh really happened with us i got a little queasy because i don't do well with motion sickness like that but beyond that i came out of it unscathed uh Pretty much both of the uh, both of the quakes were more than a hundred miles away from us, so we were pretty good as far as I know. Doing research and just googling stuff, uh, they have the specific quakes happen in mostly uninhabited areas, but uh, the governor still declared a state of emergency for San Bernardino County. So. Uh, yeah, that's going on right now. It's kind of uh, crazy. We haven't had anything since those two days, which is good. I would rather not have more earthquakes. <laughs> Thank you so much. But um, yeah, so that is pretty much what happened there. And then finally, in our uh, our news for this week, we have the results of our giveaway. We uh, did the or we announced the giveaway last week. Uh, partnering up with Danica XIX Shop uh, to give away one optic pullover from their casual cosplay line in size extra small. So uh, I want to thank everyone who participated in the giveaway. Thank you very much. And I am pleased to announce the winner of our giveaway. I'm going to give you a uh, quick, little, quick little drum roll, which is... I have no idea if you can hear that or not. But our winner is at Captain Malcolm on Twitter. Uh, let me pull up his tweet. He said, Cyclops is my favorite because he's the best. He's a born leader, first son, cool powers, incredible tactical mind, and the coolest cucumber in the room at all times. I love that description. And uh, yeah, so you win, Captain Malcolm. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you to everyone who participated. And uh, I will be sending off that optic pullover in size extra small to you. Enjoy that. I'll be getting your info and everything ASAP. So once again, thanks for participating. I hope to have more 
uh, giveaways in the future, partnering up with any number of people. This is really exciting getting to partner up with an established brand like uh, Danica's, and I am excited to do more of it. And that is going to do it for uh, this week's news segment, so let's roll right on to the main course, the entree of the episode, if you will, which is a full retrospective and ranking every Spider-Man film ever. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, strap in because we are talking about the Spider-Man films. We're going to be ranking every single Spider-Man film. And uh, yeah, this list, I will say, was harder to put together than I thought. Uh, it took a lot of re-watching of films I haven't seen in years. And there might be some surprises. I uh, I was surprised re-watching certain films. How, uh, how I felt about certain films that I had one way I was thinking about and now thinking about the other way. I'm being very intentionally vague because I don't want <laughs> I don't want to spoil the picks, but it was uh, it was pretty interesting going through kind of the ages of Spider-Man, seeing uh, how things were during the Raimi movies, how things were during the Garfield movies, uh, and how things are today. So, we're going to be ranking them all from uh, 8 to 1. That's right, there have been 8 Spider-Man-led films uh, over the past, really over the past just 20 years. So that's that's a lot. And that's three, now four different franchises. Um, God, Spider-Man. Spider-Man rules the world, ladies and gentlemen. So um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised the amount of uh, Batman films, too, that have been going on. So, anyway, uh, we're going to jump straight into it. And uh, at number eight, at the very bottom, to I think the surprise of no one, is Spider-Man 3. Spider-Man 3 was the third movie in the original uh, Raimi trilogy starring Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man and uh, featuring Topher Grace as Eddie Brock. Uh, also as Venom. Uh, we also got New Goblin. We got Mary Jane. We got Sandman. It was uh, it was a mess. I'm going to be just completely blatant and honest with you. They tried to cram the entire uh, Black Suit saga along with Venom. Uh, with a subplot about Sandman being connected to the death of Uncle Ben. All into one movie. And it just does not work. Because they also tried to introduce Gwen Stacy. Uh, in this as well, I believe she was played by uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, daughter of Ron Howard, um, and it just it was it was too much. It was too much. Um, I remember a lot of people were really disappointed by what happened, myself included. Like, especially because of how high everyone was on Spider-Man Two, I was really disappointed in Spider-Man 3. It just, it was a mess to work through. It's funny. It's one of those so bad it's good kind of films, but it is just, oh man, stacked up against the other films. It's just bad. 
it's just bad. The overacting, the camp, which I understand is a distinctly uh, Sam Raimi choice when it comes to campy, kind of over-the-top uh, filmmaking, but this is something that I think is uh, just, just the worst. Just the worst. If they had cut out... Uh, Venom and just focused on maybe just Sandman and New Goblin which was originally Sam Raimi's vision before Avi Arad uh, took over and basically said you have to have Venom in it uh, it would have been a much tighter film I honestly wouldn't have even included Sandman I would have just focused on the Harry Osborn stuff because that would have wrapped up the entire saga and it would have uh, made those parallels with Spider-Man 1 to really bookend the entire story, but it was just not good. Uh, Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, just they don't have chemistry together and it bothers me. They're great in any scenes that they aren't with each other, but the scenes that they do have with each other are just bad. And Kirsten Dunst was so done and over the role at this point, you could tell that she was just, just dying to get out of there. So Overall, even though there's a funny, goofy, uh, black suit Spider-Man, Peter being a complete and total loser, uh, discoing, all that stuff, it's just, it is at the bottom for me. Next up at number seven, very close, almost, almost was number eight, but ended up being number seven, is uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. This was the second Spider-Man film in the uh, Mark Webb, Andrew Garfield uh, Spider-Man franchise, and it's also really bad. They also did the same thing with uh, the Raimi film, or with uh, Spider-Man 3, where they tried to cram too many villains. Uh, they had the Rhino, they had uh, Electro, they had the Green Goblin, and it just, it just didn't work. It just didn't work. Um, Electro, uh, Jamie Foxx playing Electro is... You know, the effects are cool and whatnot. You can tell that he was trying, but uh, his character, his Max Dillon going into it, just feels like he's in a completely different movie. Like, he feels like he is just ripped out of the uh, Batman Forever movie. He's basically playing uh, Jim Carrey's Riddler. Just, it, it, it's awkward, and it's unneeded and it's frustrating because it's like electro could be a really cool character if you want them to be uh with rhino it's paul giamatti paul giamatti's a treasure a national treasure uh but unfortunately he could not save this role and then finally with uh, dane dehan playing harry osborne i was really disappointed i really liked dane dehan in chronicle that's still one of i think one of my favorite movies just because of how different it was when it comes to like the common superhero story but that just did not translate to him playing Harry Osborn in this movie. It just, it didn't connect. And it's, once again, it's one of those things where he feels like he's in a different franchise. And I, ah, the, the couple things that saved this and made it uh, just beat uh, Spider-Man 3 for me were the swinging sequences. Uh, the... Spider-Man swinging sequences in this movie are some of the best, I think, in the franchise. Uh, especially the opening, just him just flying all over the place, super, super good. And then the chemistry between him and Emma Stone, who plays Gwen Stacy, their relationship played across uh, the two Amazing Spider-Man films really, really rang true. And I still am... Uh, I'm still really 
impressed by how much the Gwen Stacy death scene affects me, even though I know this isn't a good movie and I know what's going to happen. It still gets me. It still gets me because of how they sell it. And once again, I love their chemistry. I love their story together. And it has one of the best uh, Spider-Man suits ever when it comes to the the Spider-Man franchise. So that is number seven. Number six is Spider-Man, the very first Spider-Man live-action film from uh, Sam Raimi starring Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man and Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin. This movie is still a fantastic origin story. It just hasn't aged very well. Um, It's campy as all get out, which again, Sam Raimi's uh, specific choice, but we can't overlook the fact that this was made in the early 2000s, and it shows. The effects haven't aged very well. Uh, The storytelling can be choppy at times, and I just... The more that I watch him, the more that I just don't really think that Tobey Maguire is a great Spider-Man. He can be an okay Peter Parker, but as Spider-Man, he just feels awkward and he feels out of place. Um, Once again, the effects are not aging very well. The CGI just wasn't up to par, uh, especially, especially like when you compare it to today's. Um, but I still respect like a lot of what they're trying to accomplish here. Willem Dafoe choose just the right amount of scenery as the Green Goblin, and he is ridiculous in every scene that he's in, especially in the uh, the Thanksgiving scene where they're going up the little elevator and he's just like tripping balls, like trying to be normal or quote unquote normal. But um, he's tons of fun. I still really enjoy it. But I can't get over the fact that all of those uh, high schoolers look like they're in their early 30s. Um, which is just how it was back then. But like we look at stuff like Homecoming and stuff now. And they actually look like high schoolers for the most part. So, I don't know. That's just me. Uh, next up, at number 5, is going to be a controversial decision. I can tell. I'm just going to say it. Number 5 is Spider-Man 2. Um, let me explain. Just before before you pull the pitchforks out, let me explain. Uh, Spider-Man 2 is still a fantastic film, and it is easily, far and above, far and away, the best of the three Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films. It is a fantastic watch. It is just so much fun. Uh, Alfred Molina's Doc Ock is still fantastic as a villain. Uh, Tobey Maguire was really coming into his own as Spider-Man, and you really got to see the evolution of what they started here. They also put a bigger focus on his kind of uh, love-hate relationship with uh, J. Jonah Jameson, which I can't believe I haven't brought up yet, but uh, J.K. Simmons playing J. J. Jonah Jameson really is an iconic uh, casting. You want to talk about people who were born to play roles like Hugh Jackman for Wolverine, um, Robert Downey Jr. for Iron Man. J.K. Simmons was the very first one in my mind that I can think of when I think of actors who were born to play characters in comic book movies. J.K. Simmons just makes that character iconic. 
and he is on fire this entire film. He's on fire all three, but this one specifically, I really loved the banter that he had with not just Peter, but everyone in the office, whether it was uh, Robinson, whether it was uh, Sam Raimi's brother, whether it was Betty Brant, like all of those characters also made the world feel alive. The effects were also leagues above the first Sam Raimi film. Uh, the train sequence is still fantastic and it's a great watch, especially if you watch the extended edition, which I did for this. And um, it's just really, really, a really good wholesome story about someone who's doubting his place in the world and him deciding what he's going to do. It is a classic coming of age story. It just, it does this, it's the same story as the first Spider-Man film in that it is showing its age. It really is. Uh, the effects, some of the dialogue, the storytelling, I was just more and more. And once again, uh, even though he felt more comfortable in this film, Tobey Maguire still comes off as way too awkward for me as, as Spider-Man. Uh, Peter Parker can be super awkward, but as Spider-Man, he should have a certain amount of confidence, and I don't feel like he has it during this. I loved the story about him uh, losing his powers because he doesn't know... Uh, he's ha he's fighting an internal war, which is causing his powers to go on the fritz, but I really just wanted more from him as Spider-Man. Not Again, not saying this is a bad film. It is not. It absolutely is not. But it is not just up to par with what I think of as a Spider-Man film. Uh, number four, we have The Amazing Spider-Man, the first Andrew Garfield film. Uh, I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me, and I understand that, and I respect your opinion. Um, but for me, I think that the first Amazing Spider-Man movie was better. Uh, and I'm going to tell you why. I love Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. As Peter Parker, a lot of people are like, oh, he's like some angsty teen skateboarding guy, um, which he absolutely is. But he also represents what nerds and people who weren't very well liked in high school were around the time that I was in high school. Like when I was in high school, like how Peter Parker is were how all the uncool kids were. And I think that when you look at it as a generational story, like what was cool when Peter Parker was uh, Tobey Maguire was not necessarily what was cool when Andrew Garfield was Tobey, or uh, when Peter Parker was Andrew Garfield, which isn't even near to what's cool now that Tom Holland is Peter Parker. It's so interesting watching the generations go. And I, I really just adore... Uh, Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. He has how I was saying that uh, Tobey Maguire is a good Peter Parker, but a just not good Spider-Man. Andrew Garfield, I think, is a good Peter Parker, but he is a great Spider-Man. His quips, the uh, the effects, I loved, and something that I really appreciated was a lot of the uh, swinging sequences were actually done like with practical effects. Like he was legit. There's a scene where he's swinging underneath a bridge in front of a bus, and it it's actually him. It's not. I mean, it might probably wasn't specifically Andrew Garfield, but that is a real person doing that stunt. And I miss that when you look at some of the more uh, 
CGI heavy films of today. A lot of uh, practical stunt work kind of goes by the wayside because it's more of a visual spectacle when uh, it's CGI. But I really liked that this was the birth of the uh, relationship between Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker being played by Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield. I love their chemistry. It's off the charts. All of their scenes together are fantastic. They they are as wholesome and electric to watch as uh, Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst aren't. Um, they just that whole relationship just blows the Peter Parker Mary Jane relationship out of the water. I'm sorry, it does. Uh, I also upon re-watching this, didn't mind the lizard. He's still ridiculous, and he still looks like a Koopa from uh, the <laughs> Super Mario movies, but or movie, but I still think that character works. Uh, Kirk Connors has al always been a fascinating character in his Jekyll and Hyde kind of way, and I really liked what they did with him here. And I like that they didn't kill him. Of course, we know now that it was, you know, towards building up a... Uh, a Sinister Six film, but in this climate now where it's like we get really, really cool villains and then they have to be killed off by the end, I really appreciated that they didn't do that. I also appreciated the swinging sequences here. Once again, fantastic. They knew what they were doing, and Mark Webb really had a clear vision for this film. I also like that Peter Parker's kind of an asshole in this movie. Uh, if you go back and you read the original, uh, Stan Lee, Steve Ditko comics from their original run. Peter Parker's a dick. Like, he is just like, you know, F everybody except my aunt and uncle because they treat me right. And when he gets his powers, he's an asshole. Like, that's the whole impetus behind with great power comes great responsibility. With the whole Uncle Ben getting shot, it's because Peter Parker's an asshole and it's his fault that those things happen. And he learns that, uh, that lesson. And it still, and that journey happens in this film. Peter Parker's a dick once he gets his powers, like he's just an asshole bullying people. The great scene that uh, he has with Dennis Leary, where Dennis Leary, uh, playing Captain Stacy, is basically like, he's not a hero. He's going around attacking people, trying to get vengeance, or like trying to serve his own personal vendetta. And that's when Peter realizes, oh shit, like maybe I'm doing this wrong. And the scene where he helps the kid off of the side of the bridge, I think is still one of the best Spider-Man scenes in any of these movies. That's where he becomes Spider-Man. So overall, I really enjoyed it. I think for me personally, it beats out any of the Raimi films, and that is why it is at number four. At number three, this was tough. This was really tough. And uh, at number three, the number three and number two was a very slim margin between these two films. But I will say that at number three, it is Spider-Man Far From Home, the newest of the Spider-Man films and the second in the uh, new Spider-Man trilogy featuring Tom Holland as uh, Peter Parker, directed by John Watts. Uh, this film, if you haven't listened to our episode, to last week's episode on our full spoiler-filled review for the film, check that out. It's going to be much more in-depth reviewing that film that I am going to be here. But overall, I really, really enjoyed this film. I really did. It's solid. The last uh, second and third acts have some of the best Spider-Man action in any film that he's ever been in, ever. 
including the Avengers films. He is just amazing. The Mysterio sequences, Jake Gyllenhaal playing Mysterio is fantastic. The uh, chemistry between Tom Holland and Zendaya playing Peter Parker and MJ is off the charts. Uh, but more in an awkward high school uh high school teen romance way than any of their predecessors and i just really loved all of the sequences i loved tom holland as peter parker he is absolutely fantastic and as a young high school age peter parker he's pitch perfect um once again just like as we talked about last week the first act drags it really drags and uh, that's ultimately what was the deciding factor between this and uh, our number two. But I really, really dug this film. And it also features one of my favorite Spider-Man suits, the red and black suit that he, uh, that he makes himself in preparation for the final act. Which brings us to me ranking every single cinematic spider-man costume ever bet you didn't think this was going to be a spider-man costume ranking but here we are so in last place it is amazing spider-man the vigilante costume where andrew garfield's running around in a ski mask with sunglass lenses just doesn't look good uh next up is the wrestler outfit from spider-man one he looks amazing in a cheesy way he fights macho man randy savage it's great but not not super amazing. Next up is the MCU Iron Spider. I've never been a fan of heavily armored Spider-Man costumes, so that is it from there. Next up is the Amazing Spider-Man 1 suit, uh, basically made from basketball fabric. Like, I liked where they were going with the design, but I did not like the cowl uh, or the mask. The uh, sunglass lenses just didn't work for me if they had been white, if they had been bigger like they went in with the uh, second suit. I think it would have been a lot better. Next up is Night Monkey, the stealth suit from... Uh, Far From Home. Really loved it. I love the noir, uh, the Spider-Man noir aspects, but overall it's not strictly a Spider-Man suit. Next up is the Raimi suit. The Raimi suit went through a couple different iterations across the franchise, but pretty much stayed the same. Uh, I don't really like how non-expressive the mask is. I realize it was just the time, but I don't like the harsh... Uh, eye lenses how they're just hard triangles it makes them look like he's scowling the whole time uh i also was wasn't a real big fan of the raised webbing it just feels too clunky for me next up we have the homecoming suit the uh the stark suit the suit that he uh was gifted by tony stark love it it's classic i'm not a huge fan of all the black lines i think it would have been a lot cleaner without them but it is a great modern update of the classic spider-man suit next up after that is the homemade suit i love the homemade suit i love everything about the homemade suit the goggles the fact that he's wearing a hoodie over a sweatshirt doesn't make any sense i guess in new york because it's gonna be colder but in summer months it's gonna be awful i love that it's uh riffing off of the scarlet spider costume just making it uh modern and something that a kid could make and i love the fact that it looks like something that a high schooler made i love how homemade the web shooters look i just love everything about this costume next up we have the red and black suit the uh parker suit that he makes in spider-man far from home love the suit it's clean it is amazing i wish the gloves had been fully red instead of the black with red fingers because i feel like it's taking away from miles morales costume uh but i really adore this suit i love spidey in red and black i just i love the aesthetic and finally at number one it is the amazing spider-man 2 suit it is just perfection it is exactly what it needed to be i would have loved if the eyes had been more expressive but they're huge they're white 
They look like Spider-Man. The it is the culmination of any kind of Spider-Man costume. It is like it was ripped straight off the page, and that is the suit that most modern comics from Dan Slott's run would riff off of. Specifically, if you look at the Spider-Verse crossover, the original one, uh, Sarah Pacelli is drawing Spider-Man from Amazing Spider-Man 2. It just, that's it. So that is the uh, official Geek Explained Spider-Man cinematic live-action rankings of those suits. Bet you didn't think that that was going to happen, but it did. Now, uh, number two. I felt really long-winded there. But um, number two, kind of as I hinted at before, is Spider-Man Homecoming. Spider-Man Homecoming is a fantastic teen Spider-Man film. Um, where the where its sequel, Far From Home, was uh, did suffer from the first act being really slow, I think this is... A really tightly wound story. Uh, sure, certain things could have been moved around, certain beats could have been changed, but I think overall the story from start to finish is more coherent and more consistent throughout than Far From Home is. I also love Michael Keaton as the Vulture. He is fantastic. The scene in the car when he is having when he is figuring out that Peter Parker's Spider-Man is one of the tensest, uh, one of the tensest I've ever been in a theater. Just seeing him work out uh that peter parker spider-man is just fantastic um i also love how uh ferris bueller the whole thing feels really just how um oh what's the uh what's the director he made all john hughes how all of the john hughes like sensibilities went into this film to make it really feel like an 80s teen uh comedy really loved it um i also you know i'm neither here nor there on certain characters like i i i don't know how to feel about ned um he was less irritating in this film than he was in uh far from home i think personally i still can't forgive them for ripping uh gonke or gonk from uh, Miles Morales basically gifting him to Peter Parker as a character. But it's neither here nor there. Uh, I really love this film. I love how he ends up having to do the entire final act in the uh, homemade suit, which, as we noticed, is uh, my top, is in my top three of all the cinematic live-action Spidey suits. And uh, I, I cannot stress to you how happy and emotional I get during the if this be my destiny scene where he has all the rubble dropped on him and he just oh man just thinking about it like he's screaming for help because you, you forget that this is a 15 year old kid in in the canon of the movie and um when he decides you know I'm gonna be spider-man he's like come on spider-man come on spider-man and he's pushing up the rubble it's it's iconic it really is iconic and that's why it gets riffed so much in cartoons and video games and movies there's a reason because it's so moving as a sequence so I loved it really enjoyed it really enjoyed it but it is not my number one and you can tell which one my number one is, but of course, my number one Spider-Man film is Into the Spider-Verse. Into the Spider-Verse is the greatest Spider-Man film ever, period. Full stop, fight me, I'll win. I believe that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is the greatest Spider-Man film because it 
truly makes good on the idea of Spider-Man that he can be anyone. Um, a lot of times, especially in today's you know social political climate, uh, there's a lot of unrest about uh, you know what's you know what belongs to what race and like all this stuff. I don't want to get too heavy on that because I don't like talking about stuff like that, especially not on the podcast. But um, the idea that anyone, even if you come from a different background, even if you have a different skin color, even if you have different values, uh, the idea that anyone can wear the mask, anyone can be Spider-Man, that you can be Spider-Man is a, is a lesson that I think is so integral to the character. And we lose sight of that sometimes because we all are in awe of how special Peter Parker is. But we forget that the idea behind Spider-Man, the idea that he wore a mask, was this idea that he could be anybody. He could be you. He could be me. He could be anyone. And the idea that this story gets, this film gets to tell that story is affecting. It's moving. And it really uh, drives the point home. I love the art style. The animation is groundbreaking for its time. There's a reason that this film won Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. It's an Oscar-winning film. It's the first Spider-Man film to win an Oscar. Like, that's huge. Uh, the story that it tells with all of the uh, parallel Earths, uh, bringing in something, you know, bringing in something that's pretty high concept, that being the multiverse and making it palatable for people to really digest. Uh, I loved Spider-Ham played by John Mulaney. He's fantastic, pitch-perfect casting. Uh, Penny Parker's fantastic, and all of my friends who loved anime loved her character. Uh, Spider-Man Noir, played by Nick Cage, who was going through an animated renaissance that year, was just so good. Once again, pitch-perfect for the role. Uh, calling someone a hard-boiled hard turtle slapper is something that I still try to incorporate into insults today. And his... All of his lines, all of his one-liners, you know, we don't pick the ballroom, we just dance. Like, just so good, just so good. Uh, Spider-Gwen, the first uh, animated, uh, I think it's the first animated, it might not be, the Spider-Man cartoon, the most recent Spider-Man cartoon may have beat it out. But the best version of uh, animated Spider-Gwen, I think, is fantastic. She's great in this. And then we get to Peter B. Parker. Um, I love old, out-of-shape Peter B. Parker. Uh, Jake Johnson played this character to perfection, and he is my favorite version of Peter Parker. This movie gave me my favorite version of Peter Parker because it's someone that, as, as someone who has been with, uh, who's been a fan for a very long time, it's very easy to get cynical about stuff and like long for the days of i remember back when i was a kid and comic books were all new and i didn't you know think about any of this stuff like i get those feelings sometimes i look at comics and i'm like man this isn't my version of this character um and getting really cynical about well whatever this event's going on like i guess i guess i'll just stay for the ride but i know exactly what's going to happen um peter b parker represents that kind of uh cynicism when it comes to this he has been spider-man for over 20 years at this point um he's just done with the character he's not happy being spider-man anymore and it shows and i loved how they built his character they told his story he is as important a character as miles he goes as he goes on as much of a journey as miles does in this film and he just 
oh, there's so many scenes where I just, I would tear up. Um, the moment when uh, he goes with uh, Miles and Gwen to Aunt May's house. And he's like, oh, I'm not ready for this. And the moment where she reaches up to him and each of them have buried the alternate version of each other. And she says, uh, you look tired. And he just gives this laugh. And he goes, I am tired. Like that, I still tear up. I still tear up. I've watched that movie like six times. I still tear up. Um, and then... Uh, the moment where he goes to reconcile with Mary Jane during like the ending, I just I still, ha, huh, still really really good. Um, he's just fantastic. Jake Johnson once again played him to perfection, and I want more stories with him. I would love an animated, you know, renew your vows kind of story featuring this Peter Parker kind of getting his life back together. Um, but of course, the lead, the person who carries the whole thing, is Miles Morales. He is fantastic. He is excellent, played by Shamik Moore. Um, he is just so good. He's so good. And he's so human. He's so alive. He's so... He just taps into everybody. And he is the best of them all. And he really takes bits and pieces from everyone that he encounters. And he turns them into something that is uniquely him. Um, he plays... He has to go through a whole range of emotions, uh, a whole range of revelations. His uh, his idol Spider-Man turning out to be somebody who is just like him, um, watching him die, finding out his uncle is the Prowler, finding out about a multiverse, having to step into this role. Like, it's a lot. It's a lot to go through. And he just, he takes it all in stride. The storytelling is tight. There's not an ounce of of unneeded stuff in this film it is all fantastic features one of the best versions of doc ock in live i love olivia octavius she's so good she's so kooky uh she reminded me of my mama and um i won't get too deep into it. i don't want to get too personal but um seeing that kind of character and, and she reminded me of my mama was really uh was really great it's really great um, speaking of the villains, I love some of the redesigns for these characters. The Prowler is fantastic. Uh, I love the Spanish version of the Scorpion and how he only speaks in Spanish, and he's just fantastic. Um, Tombstone plays a very minor role, but I liked his, uh, his design and how he was utilized in the story. And I really enjoyed Kingpin. Uh, in our review of the film, we have a very in-depth review, uh, full episode, way back check uh check the archives it's in there um our most successful episode i think our most listened to episode so far uh he's fantastic i gave i was not super high on him as a villain watching it but after seeing it a few times and really getting the sense for his character why he did certain things i have turned a corner with that character and i really like what they did with him here um, it's just overall, it's a fantastic movie. It is absolutely worth your time. If you haven't watched it, it's on Netflix. It is one of the few films that I looked at immediately walking out of the theater and saying, I need to buy it. I need to have a physical copy. I need to own a physical copy because I love this film so much. I'm holding the Blu-ray in my hand right now. Um, I just, I love, love, love this film. It is everything that I wanted in a Spider-Man film and more. And it is the perfect Spider-Man film. So to recap, 
To recap, at number 8, it is Spider-Man 3. At number 7, it is Amazing Spider-Man 2. Number 6, Spider-Man. Number 5, Spider-Man 2. Number 4, The Amazing Spider-Man. Number 3, Spider-Man Far From Home. Number 2, Spider-Man Homecoming. And number 1, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a second. He didn't rank Venom. Um, first of all, Venom's atrocious. But uh, besides that, uh, Venom is not a Spider-Man film. Uh, despite them pulling the character directly from Spider-Man comics, despite uh, the original origins in the comics of that character being so intricately tied into Spider-Man that he's basically just a darker, uh, murderous version of Spider-Man, the, Spider uh, the Venom film starring Tom Hardy uh, is not a Spider-Man film. It doesn't have any references to Spider-Man. It cannot... In my mind, it does not work in the same world as Tom Holland's Spider-Man or really any of the Spider-Mans, no matter how much Amy Pascal wants it to. I think uh, it could have tied in really well with Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. I, I think this version of that character uh, really would have fit in really well with the Amazing Spider-Man series. But since that series is no more... And Andrew Garfield is no longer Spider-Man. I don't. I just don't think it fits with Tom Holland's. And once again, it just doesn't feature anything that specifically ties into Spider-Man. There's no white emblem on its chest. Uh, it was never. I. It was never. Using Spider-Man for a host. It's just not part of it. If that ends up changing, if they do end up doing a crossover, like we know, uh, Amy Pascal wants to do, whether that's in. Uh, whatever Spider-Man Homecoming 3 ends up being, or in a separate crossover, uh, I will retroactively add that, but for now, because it is not part of any of these films, it does not count, and will not be placing among these rankings. So that is my list. Um, let me know what you thought. I'm sure that there are things that we're going to agree on and things that we're going to disagree on even more. I would love to hear your list. I would love to hear... Uh, how we differ and how we uh, come together. I love getting to have those conversations with you guys about, you know, I disagree with this, but I agree with this. Uh, just remember, be civil, be adults. We're all adults here. We can all love things for different reasons. Uh, me thinking that Amazing Spider-Man is better than Spider-Man 2 is not more or less valid than you possibly thinking that Spider-Man 2 is the best. It is number one. So um, just remember, be civil. Uh, we're all friends here. We're all friends and uh, friends of Spider-Man, FOS, if you will, according to Ned. Uh, and we're all fans of these characters as well. So let me know what your list is. I would love to have that conversation with you. Feel free to reach out to either of our social medias on Twitter or Instagram at GeeksplainPod. That's at GeeksplainPod. Or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, to geeksplained at gmail.com. Overall, I love all these films in their own kooky ways. Uh, for better or for worse, they are a legacy for the webhead that will live on long after we're gone. And I am excited for the future of the Spider-Man franchise going forward. I'm excited to look... I was excited to look back at where we've come from 
watching how the effects have evolved, watching how the storytelling has evolved, watching how the characterizations have evolved, and seeing those stories just kind of grow, mature, and evolve into something else. Overall, once again, I love all of these films, and I am just really, really excited and looking forward to where the Spider-Man films go next. And that beautiful haunting melody can only mean one thing. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are focused on Swamp Thing, the live-action Swamp Thing show on the DC Universe streaming service and app. And this week we are reviewing episode number six, titled The Price You Pay. We are heading towards the final stretch here, only four episodes to go after this. And um, I will say this... This episode was a, uh, a tale of two stories. Um, what I mean by that is I think this episode, out of all of them so far, has felt the most disjointed because it felt like um, two separate stories were going on and they didn't really affect each other, which isn't necessarily a problem. The show so far in the previous five episodes has done a really great job at having multiple stories running at the same time, but finding ways to weave them in and out of each other. Um, this one felt really disconnected for some reason, and I'm, I'm not absolutely sure why. Um, but the main two stories focused on both Swamp Thing and then Dan Cassidy. Uh, the Swamp Thing uh, story for this episode was Swamp Thing being hunted by uh, Sunderland's men after Woodrue told Sunderland, hey, I need this guy alive. So uh, episode opens up and he's being hunted by these two just awful hunters. Like, I don't know how much Avery is paying them, but it is too much. It is absolutely too much. Um... But we got some nice action here. We haven't seen a whole lot of, like, straight-up action scenes. A lot of them have been, like, tense horror thriller scenes. But uh, this one, Swampy first has to, you know, kind of evade these hunters, and then he goes on the offensive, shooting, like, these giant-ass, like, splinters, these wooden spears through this one girl's leg and then through the eyes of the other guy. Like, he did not give any quarter he was like no you're gonna come after me i'm gonna freaking blind you so uh that was pretty cool and then we pretty much saw that was kind of his deal for the episode um he was basically hiding out from the other you know prospective hunters when abby comes for him so that was kind of what his deal was the other big story was uh pretty much all dan cassidy this was a dan cassidy focused episode and we got to see that after the events of the last episode him getting just wrecked in the back of a head with it i think it was like a, a golf iron i don't know or like a crowbar or something maybe a tire iron uh he's in a coma so they're not sure exactly what's going on. Uh, Woodrue wants to use his weird-ass, like, accelerant thing on him since he's like, oh, he's in a coma. He's not going to wake up. Screw this guy. 
Um, but we also got to, while he was in a coma, get to take a peek at his past. And in his past, we see that he was, just like in the comics, a stuntman, uh, portraying all the stunts for the Blue Devil character. And while being really just unfulfilled with this uh, with his stunt life and wanting to branch out into real acting, um, not saying that stunt actors aren't real actors, but you know what I mean. Um, he is approached by what seems to be another uh, version of the guy from the last episode. I'm going to say he's the Phantom Stranger. I'm just, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to roll with it. He's a phantom. He's a stranger. I'm going to call him Phantom Stranger. But this Phantom Stranger looks younger. He's, you know, mostly clean shaven. He's wearing a nice suit. Closer to the uh, comics version of the Phantom Stranger, more so than the uh, weird swamp Phantom Stranger that we saw last episode. But so the stranger approaches Cassidy and he's like, hey man, like, this guy sucks. And you can see, like, the main actor for the Blue Devil character is like, oh, whatever, and he sucks and everyone hates him. But uh, the Phantom Stranger is basically like, dude, you deserve better than this. And I could probably make a phone call or two if you owe me a favor. And Cassidy's just, I love this exchange because Cassidy's just like, Hey, man, I know how this kind of thing works in Hollywood. Like, you ask for a favor, and then, like, weird sexual stuff ends up happening. And Phantom Stranger's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I've, I've got a bigger role for you to play. And so he disappears, and the moment that he steps away from Cassidy, uh, the PA runs up to him, and she's like, dude, everybody hates this guy. We're giving you a shot to play Blue Devil. And he's like, oh, sweet. Where'd the, uh, where'd the executive go? And the PA is like, what executive, you weirdo? And uh, so we can tell that something happened. There was, like, there was a deal with the devil, and uh, that eventually led to Cassidy being brought to Murray. So his past is kind of intertwined with what's going on with him. He wakes up. He's burning up. He's starting to turn blue. Uh, he goes after Woodrue, knowing that Woodrue basically, like, fucking used this uh, accelerant on him. And so he's... I think it's accelerating his Blue Devil transformation. Or, you know, it could be that Phantom Stranger, now that he's made it to the swamp, is, like, here to collect on his favor. I don't know what exactly is going on. And I think that uh, they probably could have made it a bit clearer what exactly was happening. But anyway, he goes after uh, Woodrue, goes to Woodrue's house, and um, eventually he is sedated by Woodrue's wife and brought, I'm assuming, back to the hospital. We're not sure yet. Uh, meanwhile, we find out that Matt Cable shot Alec Holland. We find out from uh, his mom, who has kind of figured it out as the sheriff, that Avery Sunderland basically knew that Alec Holland was poking around, so he sent Matt Cable after him, and Matt was the one that shot him in the opening episode. So we find that out. We find out he's been a flunky of Sunderland this whole time. Um, he has a falling out with his mom, who basically swears revenge and is going to do her best to bring Avery down. And then um, Matt ends up following Abby to go find Swamp Thing. And then when they are, when they confront each other, Matt is just like, what the hell is this? And Swampy doesn't seem to remember. He recognizes Matt, but he doesn't seem to remember that Matt was the one who shot him. So I think that's really interesting. And I'm not sure why there's that kind of like memory loss, but I'm sure we'll get to it, hopefully. But so that's figured out. I didn't really like Woodrow's direction in this episode because the 
pretty much the entire season running up to this, we see that he has a motive. He's driven to find a cure for his wife, and he's trying to do anything and everything that he can to make sure that happens. But like in the last episode, and then definitely in this episode, he kind of just veered off that course into like mad scientist territory, and that makes him less engaging as a character, at least to me. So I hope that we steer him back into being someone who is at the end of his rope and less like, ooh, I've got to use my serums and everything because I just want science. Those characters can work, but that's not really the character that you're setting up with Woodrue. Uh, meanwhile, we finally get the first mention of the green when Abby goes and finds uh, Swamp Thing. He mentions that there's something calling to him, something communicating with him, and he name drops the green. So that's really cool. He also talks about a darkness, which I'm sure is the rot or the black, depending on you know what comic you read. And then we get a hell of a cliffhanger where we see more of Swamp Thing's abilities where the green kind of communicates with him and grows a flower into his hand where the pollen that is kind of uh, released from it makes Abby see Alec. So we've got him back. We got our boy Andy Bean back. I'm really excited to see him again. So that was really cool. But yeah, so I'm not sure exactly what is going to happen here. I'm sure this is just like a like a hallucinogen released by the pollen making Abby see Alec. But we're probably going to get a nice little introspective episode with the two of them uh, next week. So I'm interested in that. Like I said, this is probably one of the weaker episodes of the season just because it felt a little disjointed throughout. But I'm still really interested in all of these characters. And I really hope that we kind of get Abby back into the thick of the story. She's kind of settled as a side character at this point which i don't like since she is our uh, our female lead for this show but i'm hoping that after next week's episode we steer her back into being the main character alongside Swamp Thing for the final few episodes. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly review. Let me know what you thought of the episode this week. If you've been watching, if you haven't been watching, why? Um, DC Universe is doing really well right now, just content-wise with all the comics, the TV shows, and the films that they're putting out just on the service. Uh, Young Justice Season 3 is officially back as well. The first three episodes of the back half have dropped, so definitely check those out. And uh, yeah, so with that all said, we're going to wrap up the weekly review and jump on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I tell you about the comics that I think you should be picking up, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should be checking out. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice that you would like to request, feel free to do so on either of our social medias at Geeksplained Pod, that's at Geeksplained P-O-D on Instagram and Twitter, or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, to geeksplained at gmail.com. We have a big week, boys and girls. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 
10 books this week. We are stacked. There's a lot of stuff coming up this week. So uh, strap in. We've got a bunch of books to cover. So let's jump on into it. And we're starting off with Event Leviathan number two of six written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Alex Maleev. I will be completely honest with you. I am really getting... Uh, Really what's bringing me to the dance with this book is Alex Maleev's art. His art is stunning. It is stellar. If you are not very impressed with Brian Michael Bendis' DC offering so far like I am, pick this book up if for no other reason than just for the art because Alex Maleev is putting out some of the best work I've ever seen by him and it is absolutely worth it. The story's not bad either. Um, once again, I'm just not super into uh, Bendis' version of the DC Universe I guess, but I like the characters that are being involved in this and I am looking forward to seeing how this affects the larger DC Universe as a whole. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Event Leviathan, the new miniseries by the award-winning team of writer Brian Michael Bendis and artist Alex Maleev, continues. As the mystery of Leviathan continues to rock the very foundations of the DC Universe, the world's greatest detectives gather for the first time anywhere to solve the mystery before it's too late. Lois Lane leads Batman, Green Arrow, Plastic Man, Manhunter, The Question, and a couple of genuine guest sleuths in the search for who Leviathan is and how their plans have already unfolded. This issue also guest stars Red Hood, Batgirl, and more. So yeah, uh, star-studded cast there, some really interesting characters that not a lot of people... Um give a lot of time to in the mainstream talking about manhunter plastic man the question but hopefully this book kind of raises their stock a bit and we get to see more of them as we go on next up we have miles morales spider-man number eight written by saladin ahmed with artist javi garon uh this book is continuing to be quality um the art i think has been a little shaky some I think the last issue we had some uh, guest artists kind of coming in with just the massive workload that's going on and it wasn't really up to par to Javi Garon's normal art, but the story has been really, really good so far and I've been really enjoying it. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Miles Morales has been taken. Grabbed from the streets by an unknown assailant, bound, tested, and observed like a bug under glass. Who is responsible, and how far will they push Miles to protect his friends and family? Don't miss this horrifying new chapter in Miles' life as his rogues gallery continues to grow. So yeah, I like that they're pushing Miles in different directions. We don't really have a set uh, rogues gallery for him yet, and I like that this book is establishing more of a supporting cast for him, because I think that's probably been the weakest aspect of his comics so far, uh, at least since his jump over to the mainline uh, Marvel Universe. So hopefully this continues in that vein. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1007, written by Pete. J. Tomasi, I don't know why my voice cut out for a second, uh, with art by Brad Walker. Uh, this story's interesting. It's a nice little uh, breather between the Arkham Knight story and wherever uh, Tomasi's going to take the book next. And I love the Spectre as a character, so I'm really interested to see what they do with his character, especially with last issue setting up kind of a cult around the idea of the Spectre. So uh, let's jump into the synopsis. The Spectre, 
Dead on Arrival Finale. In all of Gotham City, there's only one life Batman would be willing to risk to save Jim Corrigan and the Spectre. His own. So yeah, uh, I guess this is just a two-part story, like I said, before we jump into the next big arc. But I've been enjoying it. I like Brad Walker's art, especially how he renders the Spectre. So we'll see how this goes and possibly get some clues into where they're going next. Uh, next up, we have Avengers number 21, written by Jason Aaron with art by Stefano Caselli. If you know me, uh, I'm a huge fan of Stefano Caselli's from the West Coast Avengers book, and I'm glad that he's getting a little bit of time on the mainline Avengers book as well. So, um, yeah, this is going to be dealing with kind of the fallout of uh, War of the Realms, and the cover does show Mephisto. So it looks like we're going to be dealing with some more occult stuff before the day is through. Let's jump into the synopsis here. The war is over, and Earth's mightiest heroes are looking to celebrate. That's right, there's a party at Avengers Mountain, but who invited the Squadron Supreme of America? So yeah, I like how they're still continuing the Squadron Supreme storyline that they kind of started at the beginning of Jason Aaron's run. I love those characters as weird and rip-off-y as they are, so I'm interested to see where they go, because we're obviously leading towards a Squadron Supreme versus Avengers story. We'll see where they go and what steps they take to get closer to it here. Next up, we have Flash number 74, written by Joshua Williamson, with art by Howard Porter. This is continuing the Flash Year One storyline. So, um, this book has been interesting. I'm starting to kind of get a feeling for where they're going in trying to tell this story, because most, uh, I think most people, including myself, figured that this story was really to kind of reset and establish the turtle as a big threat going into whatever the next arc is, and I think this story is starting to do that. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The Flash Year One continues. The turtle has made his grand entrance and is about to bring down the house. As an untested hero with the mastery of his ability still in infancy, Barry Allen will face the toughest challenge of his life to defend Central City from the invading forces of those who seek its destruction. Our hero is faced with the fateful choice to either become a superhero or die trying. Been working on uh, working on my legal. We had to do that in my uh, voiceover class recently, and it is tough saying that many words that quickly. And uh, it's even tougher to say those words clearly. So um, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But yeah, uh, this story's been interesting. I'm glad that they brought Old Man Barry back into the story because I think he was the most interesting part of the story so far. And we'll see where exactly this leads him from here. Next up, we have a very surprising book. I didn't even know this was coming out, but uh, it is Wolverine and Captain America Weapon Plus number one, written by Ethan Sachs and art by, ooh, okay, art by Diogenes Neves. I know I said that wrong, and I apologize. But this seems like a really, really interesting story, so um, let's jump into the synopsis and then we'll talk about it. The secret history behind their origins revealed. In 1940, scientists attempted to make a man into the perfect weapon, a super soldier. They failed and made him a legend instead. Before the turn of the century, they tried again for the tenth time. They failed, making a man into death incarnate. At long last, Ethan Sachs and Diogenes Neves reveals the shadowy connections between Captain America Wolverine, and many more of the Marvel U super soldiers, including 
some surprises. The conspiracy begins here. So yeah, um, I have no idea where the story's going to go, but I love when uh, Cap gets to interact with Wolverine because they're just, they're so polar opposites and yet so similar in a lot of ways. So um, this is one of my most anticipated books for this week, and I had no idea this was coming out. Plus, Ethan Sachs has been putting in a lot of great work, specifically on uh, Old Man Hawkeye, which I really, really enjoyed. And uh, Diogenes Neves, even though I have no idea how to say his name, has been really good when he's been drawing Green Arrow and Deathstroke over at DC, so I'm really interested to see where they go with this. Next up, we have Young Justice, number seven, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by John Timms. Uh, John Timms seems to be the guy who's going to be taking the reins over as the permanent artist for this book now that uh, Patrick Gleason is over at Marvel. And I like his art. I like Gleason's a little bit more, how he was uh, drawing all the characters, but I have no doubt that I will get used to John Timms' drawings as he is very, very good. He's very good at the art thing. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Young Justice lost in the multiverse. After the explosive conclusion to their gem world adventure, the team is having a tough time finding their way back to their Earth. No, we can't tell you where they end up, but rest assured, you will be surprised. But as exciting as all that is, we have bigger problems to deal with as Tim Drake is about to do something he has only done lots of times before. He is about to announce his new alias, a new superhero name, a young justice name, and this time it's permanent, like forever. So yeah, this has kind of been teased for a while. Uh, solicitations went out a while ago about this, that uh, Tim Drake is no longer going to be going by the Robin name, and he's even going to be getting a new costume in the next few issues as well. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about it, because the whole uh, thing with Tim is he's he's the one who only... Ch He's the only Robin who chose to be Robin, who like went after being Robin. So I, um, I don't know how I feel about taking him away from that. I think there's ways that you can do it where he evolves, turning, doing the whole Red Robin thing uh, pre-New 52. But I'm interested to see exactly what he goes by. Um, if it decide if it's something kind of in that vein like Redbird or something like that, we'll see. But uh, yeah, so I've been enjoying it so far. It's been a good book. I'm interested to see them jumping through the multiverse. So that should be really good as well. Next up, we have Thor number fifteen. We're in the home stretch here, folks. Uh, written by Jason Aaron with art by Mike Del Mundo. Uh, this is dealing with the aftermath of War of the Realms, just like Avengers number twenty one is. But this one's a little bit more close to home because this was Thor. Uh, his this was his uh, crossover, his event, and a lot of stuff happened in War of the Realms. So um, I'm interested to see exactly what they decide to do with him now that his status quo has changed drastically. So let's jump into the synopsis here. War of the Realms epilogue, new status quo for the God of Thunder. To end the War of the Realms, Thor made a sacrifice that will leave him forever changed. Now, he must face the choices he's made. What lies ahead for the God of Thunder? Jason Aaron's legendary run draws to a close. Don't miss the start of his final arc. So yeah, that's pretty, uh pretty big. This is the start of him, you know, winding down. We know that he's, after this last arc, he's going to jump into the King Thor book, and then that's going to be it for his run on Thor. Uh, this is a big deal. 
they've even uh, blacked out in all the solicitations what the uh, cover is for Thor number 15. So uh, they have it like all marked with like a classified logo and everything. So I'm excited. I'm interested to see exactly what Jason Aaron decides to do with his last couple arcs on Thor. But it's definitely going to be big, especially with how big it's been since the beginning. Next up, we have Batman number 74, written by Tom King, with art by Mikkel Janine and David Finch. Uh, this is the last issue before we jump into City of Bane. Uh, this issue actually had a lot of controversy recently about it because the cover, which was originally done by Mitch Jarrods, which kind of melded the sensibilities of Batman with uh, Jarrods' Sheriff of Babylon art that he... Uh, that book that he did with Tom King, but it got pulled for whatever reason, and now it's being replaced by another uh, cover, which is sad because the original Jared's cover was really, really cool, but I am really curious how they're going to wrap up the story because we have to deal with uh, the big bomb that was dropped at the end of last issue, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, spoilers, um, Flashpoint Batman is bringing Bruce and a coffin to the final Lazarus pit in the world, and this coffin happens to contain the corpse of his mother. So, um, yeah, we're talking about Bruce's parents possibly coming back, like, fully by the uh, by the conclusion of the story so i don't know how i feel about that we will just have to see so let's jump into the synopsis here the fall and the fallen concludes with a father and son showdown flashpoint batman reveals his fiendish reasoning for dragging batman into the desert and who is in the coffin they've been dragging along with them but is this a step too far? It's Bruce Wayne versus Thomas Wayne for the right to wear the cowl, and all of Gotham City hangs in the balance. So yeah, we're getting Bruce versus Thomas. We're going to see which one stacks up and which one's the uh, the dominant Batman. So I, uh, I think as we're winding down to the end of Tom King's run, it's really starting to pick up again and really becoming something that is reaching up to the heights of previous arcs in this run. So I'm excited. City of Bane is coming up in two weeks. It's going to be really, really good. And finally, we have War of the Realms Omega number one. This is the big book for this week, uh, written by Jason Aaron and others with art by Juan Ferreira and Oh, I know I said that wrong, and I apologize. Uh, and Phil Noto as well. So this is kind of closing everything out. This is giving us kind of like an anthology book to let let us know what's going on with Jane Foster, what's going on with Loki, with Punisher, all these kind of unresolved threads that are leading outwards from War of the Realms. We're going to get previews on where they go from here. So let's jump into the synopsis. The war is over and the Marvel Universe must pick up the pieces. 
Midgard is broken, and as heroes of Asgard and Earth alike start to sift through the pieces, new heroes and villains emerge. What's next for Jane Foster, now free of the hammer she was willing to die to hold? Thor's brother Loki faced a terrible fate in the War of the Realms, and now the God of Mischief must make himself anew. For the Punisher, the war isn't even close to finished, but this time he's got his own army. And for Thor himself, destiny has finally arrived. The God of Thunder strikes out for a whole new adventure. So yeah, uh, Jason Aaron has put his stamp on the Thor mythos forever, I think, and he is really setting up where all of these characters in that corner of the Marvel Universe are going to go. So... I'm really excited. Uh, I'm just overwhelmed with the amount of books that we're picking up this week. So to recap, we have Event Leviathan, number two of six, Miles Morales, Spider-Man, number eight, Detective Comics, number 1007, Avengers, number 21, Flash, number 74, Wolverine and Captain America, Weapon Plus, number one, Young Justice, number seven, Thor, number 15, Batman, number 74, and War of the Realms, Omega, number one. If I missed any books, and I would be surprised if I did, please let me know. Uh, I always enjoy discovering new books. And uh, once again, feel free to let me know on our social media or through email. And uh, let me know about your specific rankings for these Spider-Man films. I'm sure there were a couple of spots where uh, certain listeners may disagree with me, but I stand by everything I said with these films. I really do think, um, at least once again, in my opinion, this is the this is where these all rank. So uh, feel free to let me know what your list is. Feel free to let me know if you disagree. I would love to have that conversation with you. And next week, Spidey month continues with a special video game focused episode so look forward to that same geek time same geek channel but for now for geek explain this is eric azana thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time if i'm crazy i'm on my own if i'm waiting it's on my throne if i sound lazy just ignore my tone because i'm always gonna answer when you call my phone like what's up danger like, what's up, Daniel?